This episode is brought to you by Dietz and Watson. Uh, Molly, it's time we have the talk about hot dogs. Oh, oh, okay. Well, hey, (laughs) I'm looking for a hot dog that's the real deal, Matthew. Like a classic hot dog that like when you think of like the platonic ideal of a hot dog, Mm -hmm. I recommend Dietz and Watson's Dietz Dogs. Ah, well, I've heard that they're handcrafted and made using only Dietz and Watson premium meat. I can vouch for this because Dietz and Watson sent us a big box of hot dogs and other delights. And wife of the show, Lori, and I had them for dinner last night. We had uh, the classic beef Dietz dogs with uh, toasted buns with sauerkraut and pickled jalapenos and Dietz and Watson ballpark style yellow mustard. Do you think you'd recommend Dietz and Watson hot dogs for fried rice? Oh, yeah. Fried rice with some sliced hot dogs. I'm going to be doing that soon. Wife of the show, Lori, is going to be making the hot dog flour buns from Christina Cho's cookbook, Mooncakes and Milk Bread. Very excited for this. Mm, And I'm especially pleased because Dietz and Watson does things the right way. So this means like no additives, no fillers, no artificial flavors, no cutting corners. You can feel good about this stuff. Dietz and Watson. It's a family thing since 1939. Shop now at Dietz slash the right way. That's Dietz, D-I-E-T-Z, and Watson.com slash the right way. I'm Molly. And I'm Matthew. And this is Spilled Milk, the show where we cook something delicious, eat it all, and you can't have any. And today we're talking about sumac. That's right. Sumac is, I bet most of our listeners have eaten sumac, but but just to make sure we're all on the same page, we're talking here about that spice that has that delicious tangy flavor and like reddish purple color that is um, that shows up in all kinds of Middle Eastern cuisines. Yeah, I like this is our new segment, Let's Get on the Same Page. Let's get on the same page. It's, it's my favorite new segment that we yeah. just discovered. Anyway, and we're going to have a special guest today uh, who is the author of the book, Sumac Recipes and Stories from Syria. Yeah. But first, because neither Matthew nor I grew up in a sumac-influenced household. Correct. We're yeah. going to give you our memory lanes, which Except are, you kind are quite of did, short. Huh? Well, so, okay. So strangely enough, in Oklahoma City, I feel like I got more, I, I, I had more exposure to Middle Eastern cuisines than you would think, which is still like not a lot, but more than you would yeah. think. Yeah, no, I think so, more than I did, because you, you had Mediterranean imports. We had Mediterranean imports, but also um, there was a decent-sized Lebanese community in, in our sure. neighborhood in particular, and my mom's dear friend, Hannah Saada, uh, was a wonderful cook and introduced us as a family to a lot of basic food items that are, you know, foundational or typical in Middle Eastern cuisine. So um, sumac, I think of, of Hannah as being a real sumac person, zatar, and also like yogurt cheese, uh, yes. lebna, stuff like that. So strangely, I first encountered sumac in Oklahoma City. And uh, my mom, Tony Negroni, she's really into sumac. <laughs> okay, how, what, does that, what does that look like? Well, it means that like... She has many recipes in her repertoire that call for sumac. Okay. Um, Like, it is a, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that if my mother comes across a recipe in a cookbook that has sumac in it, she's going to make that recipe. Does she know about this new cookbook, Sumac? 
I'm not sure if she does, but she will after this episode. Okay, maybe tell her don't listen to this episode in case you need a gift for her. Oh, okay. Okay, great. Anyway, the best part is, Matthew, I'm recording yeah. this from her house because we're uh, uh, things are loud at our house again this morning. Yeah. Still doing some construction over there. So anyway, um, I am in the house of, of Tony Negroni, Sumac Lover. Yeah, and you're sitting in front of, this is not a joke, a, uh, a portrait of Molly as a young child. <laughs> Um, like a, a, a painted portrait, not a photo. Yeah. And I didn't do this on purpose. I'm just in the only room that I felt would be soundproof enough and away from everything. No, it sounds it sounds great. And like having your younger self looking over your shoulder to make sure you're doing everything properly is what we should all do. That was the kind of child I was. I was the kind of child yeah. who was watching everyone to make sure they did everything properly. Oh, me too. So, yeah. I remember one time when I was a kid, one of one of like the my biggest asshole moments as a child. I was probably like eight or nine, and like my friend and I uh, like set up this like bicycle track, which was really like you know there was no track. It was just like a uh, like a, a loop that we would ride around like through my yard and like out onto the street and stuff. Oh man, that and, is uh, that's childhood. It was so ill-conceived because there are so many places where, like, if two people were riding at the same time, they would tangle with each other and fall over and get scraped in various places. But I was like, no, it has to be this way. This is how we designed it. Like, we have to keep riding around this loop, even though we're going to get hurt every time. Like, I was such a piece of shit. I don't know if I've ever mentioned on the show sort of my version of, of um, this kind of bicycle track you're talking oh, about. Oh, I want to hear about this. So, you know, because I rode, rode horses as a kid, I would... Also, oh, your version of a bicycle was a horse. I would always set up like like a jumping course, like at a horse show. But with but no horse. With, but with no horse. And okay. I would gallop around on my own two legs <laughs> and jump over these obstacles I had set up for myself. Do you have like a home movie of this? I don't. But I oh. mean, I spent hours doing this for years. Like this was a typical... <laughs> This was not like a one-time thing. I love it. And I remember setting this up in the backyard. I remember like which trees had like a little crook just in the right place where I could like prop up a yardstick there that then would be like, you know, also balanced on the back of a kitty chair or something. Okay. And I would I would have specific courses. So you had to take the jumps in a certain order. And I had some friends who, who were um, kind enough to come do this with me. Was this dressage? No, dressage is, dressage has no jumping. Oh, okay. I didn't know this that. This was like show jumping. Okay. But like human show jumping. Human the, show the jumping. The most dangerous game. I don't know if you've seen, there are videos online of like a whole bunch of, of young humans, mostly female, who have taught themselves how to canter on all four legs, meaning arms and legs, and jump over jumps. Have you seen this? This is I not what I did. I haven't seen this, and like, I don't want to, I'm afraid what'll happen if I Google it. Do you mean, are you afraid of how it's going to mess with your algorithms? Yeah, like, like if I go, like, <laughs> yeah. like, human, yeah. female, all fours, cantering. Like... <laughs> <laughs> My friend Riley told me about it, and the two of us um, in a park not too long ago tried it, like to uh -huh. see how well we could do. I imagine it would take a lot of fours. practice, but you had yeah, lots of practice as a child. Tough. And Riley is like really tall. I mean, she might be like five ten, and she has very well, how many long hands legs. Tall is she? <laughs> So you can imagine, like, you know, I mean, I'm like 5'5", five, five, and it was hard enough uh, for me to, like, figure out what to do with my legs, which were much longer than my arms. But oh, Riley, now she I looks really graceful, this. though, when she gets it right. 
I'm like I'm like of exactly the age to like cause a serious injury by trying something dumb like. I mean, this. imagine if you fell on your face because like really, it's very easy to fall on your face doing. Yeah, this. like it's it's less my face I'm worried about than than like my back. Yeah, because I feel like faces heal. Yeah, backs once you're back. <laughs> I'm, I'm back. Did you miss me? <laughs> um, well, you so, never oh, go, the, you ne- once you once you mess up your back, you never go back. Exactly. That's, that's that is how, how the goes. saying goes. That's, that's right. What I was trying to do. So uh, before we get to my sumac memory lane, you know, we did a live show a few weeks ago oh, right. uh, on May thirteenth, um, <laughs> yeah. like two weeks ago. And if you were there, thank you so much, and thank you for donating to stop AAPI hate and the Black and Brown Podcast Collective. If you weren't there, though, you can watch a video. And pretend you were there uh, by going to our Reddit. It'll be the, up until June 30th. And that's reddit.com slash r slash everything spilled milk. It was fun. It was. It was so fun. But now we're talking about sumac and nothing yes. could be more fun than that. So, Matthew, what's on your memory lane besides bicycle courses? Or bicycle okay, track? my sumac memory lane doesn't go back very far. Like I kind of knew of it and had had it in the form of Zatar, the spice blend, but uh, like had never like really thought like considered it as an ingredient on its own in my own kitchen until recently when I ordered some. Uh, and now I have like a beautiful packet of uh, like deep red sumac. And wife of the show, Lori, immediately took up the mantle, as we like to say, yes. and uh, made a snacking cake that was a rhubarb snacking cake with a sumac crumb. So it's like a sumac flavored crumb topping. It had the beautiful color and it also mm. had the tangy flavor. And, uh, you know, we're, we're probably going to like talk a lot about snacking cakes in a couple of weeks, but, uh, uh, Watzel has made a number of recipes from the book snacking cakes. And, uh, this was one of the best. Awesome. And then you've also gone to Yala, right? Yeah. Have you been uh, to Yala? Olive in Seattle. I have. I've gone once. It was delicious. Yes. It's like a fantastically messy and delicious sandwich place um, that is uh, mostly, I think, Lebanese and Syrian inspired uh, uh, flatbreads and uh, assorted fillings and toppings. They have a wonderful hot sauce. But uh, they also, um, you know, they use, they use uh, za'atar um, in a number of things, but they also have a sumac chicken that is like heavily like tanging sumac flavor that you can add to any sandwich and we did and it was very good nice so i got to do the research for this episode yeah i'm excited and um wow i can't believe how interesting i found sumac and maybe this is just because i've been really into gardening lately oh molly has been so into gardening lately like (laughs) i get i get like just a picture of a plant of a flower will just like pop up on my phone. I'm like, Oh, Molly's out in the garden again. Yeah. That's right. Like 10 gallon gardening hat. And do you have like, like fancy gardening gloves? Oh, of course. Of course. Okay. Anyway. So botanically sumac is any one of like 35 species of flowering plants in the genus Roos and related genera in the family Matthew, you pronounce this anacardiaceae. Anacardiaceae. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, interestingly enough, this family also includes cashew, mango, poison ivy, poison oak. Well, because like if you encounter sumac in nature, like it can sting you, right? Yes. So, all of these, uh, all the the plants in this genera, or this family, actually, um, they all. Have like a, an irritant mm-hmm. in them. Anyway, smoke trees too, which you see a lot here in Seattle. I don't think I know you what would that recognize is. them. You'd recognize them if you'd seen like them. Like, does smoke I mean, it, come out of them at all times? 
Wouldn't that be cool? Smoke uh, that sounds trees. Like a, yeah, look up smoke trees. You'll recognize them if you see a picture. Yep. I've seen this. I've yep. seen a smoke tree. So lots of, of things, like a wide variety of plants are related to, uh, to, you know, the plant that we get sumac the spice from. Okay. So anyway, sumac grows um, in subtropical and temperate regions all over the world, especially in East Asia and Africa and a lot of parts of North America, okay. actually. Um, sumacs are, oh, here we go, Ma- Matthew, I need you to be Mr. Uh, Botany. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, sumacs are dioecious shrubs and small trees. What does that mean? Okay, so dioecious, you know, I, I'm just going to Google it because I can't ever remember which one is, is which. Uh, okay, okay. I, I, my guess was correct. Dioecious is, is when there are separate male and female plants. Most plants oh. are monoecious, so like they've got like the the you know, all the parts in the same flower that they need to, to self-pollinate. Okay. All of these plants, uh, all these sumac plants produce fruit that are, um, that are droops. And remind me what droops are. Cherries are droops, but what, what makes it a droop? Is it like... Like, uh, is, it, is a peach a droop also? It's like... Is it like things that have like a, like a cleft? It's things that like have two- a cleft. It's clefty things. <laughs> But I see the, see what I'm doing with my hands, Matthew. I'm making a cleft. I do I do see. Yes, I can see your. Cleft Does, don't from my here. hands look like um, a peach? <laughs> okay, so a droop. Uh, this is just like off the top of my head, obviously. But I'm gonna say like I'm guessing it's an indehiscent fruit in which an outer fleshy part or exocarp <laughs> surrounds a single shell, uh, the pit stone or pyrene of hardened endocarp with a seed inside. Oh. Uh, okay, and I'm yeah. gonna, just gonna like go out on a limb and say they probably usually develop from a single carpal. Okay, okay, great. Well, anyway, so so the it's a peach-like of- fruit. Okay, but I, I'm I think that they're smaller, like cherries. Oh yeah, yeah. I think no, I do mean in, like in terms of size. I meant in terms of conformation. And they have varying levels of of hair at maturity, which oh, yeah, is yeah. really like you. You mean like like over like my like mature period have had various levels of hair? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. And like you, they also propagate by seed. <laughs> wow. I've been like droop, I've been to. drooping all over without without realizing it. <laughs> droop, 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 droop. Anyway, no. Um, you know, basically because like birds and other animals e- eat these fruits and then oh, poop out their seeds. Oh, believe me. Like <laughs> I've had, I've had a lot of problems with birds eating my seeds. <laughs> Ew! Ew! <laughs> Ew! The, I mean, the, the, um, to be to be clear, the beak is the problem. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anyway, they can also reproduce by, um, like, as a rhizome, like making oh, like new a, shoots. Yeah, lateral stem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, today we're going to be talking I'm, mostly. Can't believe you said rhizome again. The emails we're going to get right. Right. Um, anyway, today we're going to be talking mostly about one particular member of this of this genus. We're going to be talking about Rus coriaria. Okay. Okay. Because that is the particular plant that this spice that we think of as like sumac. This this thing we know as sumac. So that's probably as, the species uh, that I have in my spice packet. Exactly, okay. exactly. Yeah, people, you know, of course, grow this plant, like, just because it's often pretty, but it's primarily used as a, a spice and beverage flavoring. Yeah, so what they do is they dehydrate the fruit, 
and can then they grind it up and it makes this beautiful reddish purple spice. Yep. But interestingly enough, the fruits can also be used to make like a pink lemonade, even though it's like like lemonade in quotes because it's actually sumacade, which is what it's sometimes called. I've never had this. It sounds good. Isn't this interesting? Yeah. Apparently, it's primarily in North America that this is made. By whom? Well, I wonder, it seems to me that it must be a highly regional thing. I don't really know where, but I do know that Native American peoples have also used the leaves and the droops uh, in combination with tobacco for like traditional smoking mixtures. Okay. So I don't know if maybe uh, one of its uses in Native American culture was then as like a beverage flavoring. I mean, it, it, that seems highly likely. It does given seem that highly it's likely. I mean, partly North just in American the sense thing. that like it seems like any plant that's out there, people will try and do everything possible with it. Right. 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 Which is yes. which is mostly cool, I think. Another thing that's really interesting about this plant, I think, is that, as you can imagine from the color of ground sumac, yeah. the spice, it makes a really good dye. Oh, like this, I, that's this plant what I thought makes you were going to say. Yeah. And it also, it also has a lot of tannins in it. So it's often used in leather manufacturing as both a tanning agent and a dye. Oh, that makes sense. Cause I, I like tasted some like straight out of the bag this morning. And like, that's, that's the thing that like, you know, it, it has that astringent quality. It's not just sour. Ah, right? okay. From the I've tannins. never tasted it like straight out of the jar. Oh, you gotta. Okay. The particular plant that is used to make sumac the spice, Rus coriaria, is native to the Eastern Mediterranean, like Crimea, northern Iran, but it's naturalized now like throughout the Mediterranean basin, which probably helps explain why it shows up in so many different Middle Eastern cuisines. So um, in Arab cuisines, it's often used as a garnish on mezes like hummus. It's also sometimes added to falafel. Okay. In many different parts of uh, the Middle East and, and Asia, it is used in rice and in kebabs, like in Palestine, Afghanistan, Armenia, Bangladesh. No, this totally Iraq, makes sense. Iran so on and so forth. And then it's often added to salads, which you can imagine, like that really nice tangy lemon flavor, uh, particularly in Armenia, Lebanon, Turkey, Syria. Uh, anyway, of course, a, you know, a, all a this... feeling that our guest might have something to say about that. Yes. Okay. Well, so let's, should we, should we go talk to our guest? Let's do it. Ever been to Delaware? If not, now's the time to visit. You'll find a lot of fun in a little state. Since you can drive anywhere in the state in a couple of hours, you'll spend less time driving and more time enjoying. Explore from the bays to the beaches, stroll the boardwalks, and have an oceanside bonfire. Get a taste of Delaware at one of the award-winning restaurants and enjoy a local craft brew. See the first state's unique historic landmarks and experience Delaware's endless discoveries. Plan your adventure today at visitdelaware.com. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Anas Atassi is an entrepreneur and author who was born in Homs, Syria, and now lives in Amsterdam. And his passion for cooking and Syrian food inspired him to write sumac, recipes and stories from Syria, to preserve his family recipes and stories. Anas, welcome to Spilled Milk. 
Hey, uh, Matthew and Molly. Thanks a lot for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. So I was wondering, so we have had a chance to look through your beautiful book and um, and we are so excited to share it with our listeners. Um, and the, uh, the first question we had for you is, can you tell us more about the concept of nafas? I'm not sure if I pronounced that right. Yeah, you did well. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> and and how, how that informs your cooking and the recipes in the book. Yes, so nafas in uh, Arab uh, in Arabic uh, basically it's an Arabic word and in English it means uh, breath, and um, this the people use uh, this word usually to compliment uh, a cook, uh, and it's usually like the biggest compliment you can give to a person if somebody is cooking with nafas, and uh, usually what it really means is like if somebody who's a cook who uh, kind of. Uh, have a really good sense of uh, the ingredients and uh, mixing the ingredients in the right way but also the way of preparation this is like the art of cooking the passion that a person can bring to if to the food the intangible that kind of translates into uh, like amazing uh, taste this is basically nafas excellent so where did you grow up and uh, and what do you remember from uh, from visits to syria from when you were young so I grew up in Saudi Arabia. My uh, parents, uh, they were working there. They, my dad had his business. And uh, we used to kind of uh, uh, travel every year, uh, at least once every year during the summer break. And uh, and uh, luckily, my mom was a teacher, so she would get like a full three months off from the school. So Excellent. we would like uh, nine months in Saudi and three months in Syria. And uh, we would spend the whole summer uh, in Syria, like full of celebration. And uh, what's nice about uh, the summer, it's really, it felt like a series of celebrations from weddings to uh, uh, graduation parties to birthdays. So, and, uh, and usually all the, like the, the celebration around uh, engagements and weddings, they all like squeezed in the summer, when, uh, which was quite a really special uh, time. So your book is called Sumac, and I wondered if you could tell us uh, what sumac is and how it's made. Yes, so sumac is a uh, spice. It is like a type of fruit, like somehow like a berry type of looking fruit that uh, would basically uh, be dried. And after it's dried, it would be uh, kind of... uh, um, ground up ground ground up yes mm-hmm. exactly thank you so and uh, usually it stays like uh, with a, a bit of coarse structure to it and it's not very fine yeah and it has this really deep purple uh, color into it and um, the taste is uh, very tangy and citrusy and uh, I heard a story actually from uh, the old days that the sumac, the old days used to be substituted for lemons when there's oh, no lemon sense. in the house. Yeah, you would use uh, a bit of more sumac to give a, a bit of tanginess and uh, citrus uh, flavors to the dish. I heard that in ancient Rome, they used it in vinaigrettes like we might now do with with lemon juice, that they would use like the juice, I guess, of of the sumac fruit. Exactly. I heard this too. Yeah. 
So cool. That's wonderful. So what uh, what's the role of sumac in Syrian cooking today, like in, in your cooking and in Syrian food in general? Like where do we see sumac getting used? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, for me, I, I find sumac is a very versatile, versatile spice. It could be used like in uh, soups, in uh, salads, uh, but also in meats and uh, or, or fish even. So it's kind of, uh, you can add it into many type of uh, of dishes and uh, what i like about it why sumac and why i chose uh, the, the title of the book sumac is not only the taste but also for me the memories that are attached to this uh, spice especially when i remember my mom uh, going back to saudi and stuffing my uh, my in between my clothes jars of sumac in order to bring from syria to saudi but what i really like about this uh, uh, the spice is that there are many spices like i don't know black pepper turmeric cumin they're common in so many areas like east to west uh, many countries and many cultures but sumac is really much more concentrated in the levant area and of course in um, in syria and that's what i also like about it it's quite uh, uh, more regional to, uh, uh, to to the levant area makes sense uh, what's the word for sumac in in syrian arabic we always try and like learn learn the real word for something on this show well, it is summa. Okay. <laughs> so, so maybe I'm, I'm, I, well, in English you would say it's sumak, yeah. but in Arabic it's uh, summa. 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 <laughs> yeah, with like a little. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Summa. <laughs> Perfect. If someone hasn't cooked with sumac before, what would you recommend that they make first? Like uh, a recipe from your book, perhaps? Yeah, some, something which is very simple, like uh, uh, um, a salad, fatouche. Fatouche is a oh, very yeah. simple green salad, and uh, it's quite common also. It's, uh, there's no real recipe for, uh, for fatouche because it's like really a mix of vegetables, of seasonal vegetables, whatever you have in your uh, pantry or your fridge. You would cut those uh, uh, vegetables and then add some uh, olive oil, uh, some lemon, uh, some vin- uh, vinaigrette. But also at the end, you would uh, put uh, a lot of sumac on top. Uh, oh, that sounds wonderful. And that's a really, yeah, very good salad. If you go into a Middle Eastern restaurant, uh, you know, out, outside of, uh, of the Middle East itself, um, and it's not billed as a restaurant from a, from a specific uh, uh, nation or culture, like what would, would uh, clue you in that the owners of the restaurant might be, might be Syrian or from the Levant? Mm. Yeah, that's a very good question. I think the variety of, uh, of, uh, of dishes, especially the, the mezzas or the appetizers, mm-hmm. uh, if you see uh, like, uh, for example, hummus, but hummus is now like the most international right. dish now even, uh, uh, even more than French fr- fries, yeah. probably. Yes. <laughs> and everyone is claiming hummus, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, at least if anybody, everyone is enjoying hummus, I'm uh, very happy that Good. it is an international dish. But uh, yeah, hummus, but also mhammara, which is this uh, uh, spicy uh, pepper paste uh, with walnut dip. Oh, that um, sounds really good. Yeah, it's a really good one. And uh, mutabal is another type of dish that uh, that is also can give me a clue. But 
I think if, uh, but in general, I think the variety on the menu, it's definitely uh, a trigger that this is a Middle Eastern or a Syrian restaurant. I also remember when I used, used to be a child, uh, many restaurants in Syria are are common to have really a lot of a lot of dishes and some of the dishes like vary from uh, cordon bleu to pizza to hummus to like <laughs> the, the variety is is uh, is very stretched even sometimes <laughs> <laughs> that's wonderful well thank awesome. you so much uh and just to so our listeners can find your book again it is sumac recipes and stories from syria and you can find it everywhere books are sold yeah so uh, you can uh, uh, follow me on instagram uh it's a very easy name it's my name anas atasi and uh, it was really 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 nice speaking to you molly and uh, matthew it was uh, absolutely pleasure Thanks a lot for organizing this. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Well, that was great talking with Anas. I hope uh, I hope we can have kind of a summer of celebrations this summer. <laughs> Me too. Maybe I'll make some sumac aid. Yeah. All right. Okay, but wait, can I tell you a few more things about sumac that that haven't come up yet? Botanical things? No, we've got some etymology. Oh, oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the word sumac comes from the Old French, which comes from the medieval Latin, which comes from Arabic, which comes from Aramaic, the word sumaca, meaning red. Okay, that makes sense. And I I, I think this may have been like, well, uh, you were kicked out of the the chat due to technical difficulties, but uh, Anas taught me how to say uh, sumach in uh, in Arabic. Oh dear. Did I, I do I did it badly, didn't I? No, no, no. That no, that I, wasn't the, that was not the point I was trying to make. I was I was oh, just fine. I was just I was just saying the point I was trying to make that I got was that I got some like special one-on-one time with, with the guest <laughs> and you didn't. <laughs> My internet failed me for a minute there. Um did you guys talk about the fact that sumac is is an ingredient in the spice mixture zatar? Only a little bit. So let's let's talk more about what zatar is. It, zatar, the word I, I think is is the word for time, or is it, or is at least related to the word for time. So it's it's a it's a spice blend that can like vary enormously, but like almost always has thyme and sumac, and I want to say one other thing that almost always appears in zatar. You know, producer Abby was recently telling us about. I don't know if you remember this. She has really been enjoying making cachoe pepe with zatar from an auto. Lengi recipe. Sesame seeds. I was going to say sesame yes. seeds, but I was worried that I was confusing it no, you're with, absolutely right. uh, with dukkah. No, I mean, there are, there are many spice blends. There, there are many more spice blends in the world than there are spices. And so it's okay for the same spice to appear in more than one. Okay. Okay. You know, interestingly enough, so I got really curious as I was thinking about the, the prevalence of, of sumac in cuisines of the Middle East. And I was really curious about when, you know, like the first place it shows up in recorded history of, of okay. cooking or whatever. So I'm seeing that in recorded history, it shows up as having been used in ancient Rome as, as uh, Anas and I were talking about, that apparently mature sumac fruits were known and used well before lemons ever were. Oh, wow. Um, 
all the way back to the time of ancient Rome. And then in medieval times, so, you know, roughly the 1200s to the 1400s. So they didn't even I mean, have yeah, limoncello? I guess not. Okay. Um, it became really popular, I think, as like a status thing among Western Europeans and was also often used in medieval medicine. Question. Is that the yeah. origin of the term Mac Daddy? I'm sure okay. it is. Yes. Yeah. We've gotten to the bottom of It was of originally Sumac Daddy. Yeah. Anyway, but um, but yeah, I find it so interesting, like to think about, um, you know, an ingredient that is so prevalent for us today, like lemons, right? So, like when we describe sumac, we have a hard time even describing it without reaching for like a, a comparison yeah. that is more recent actually than sumac. Oh, so you think when like lemons first started to, to come into cuisine, people were like, you know, try this yellow thing. It tastes kind of like sumac. It's like sumac. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's probably true. Start, I think I'm going to start doing that now just to be annoying. I'll be like, oh, yeah. You know what? I think this recipe could use a little sumac. Yeah. Needs a little tanginess. I mean, I have oh, quite a bit really of sumac sumac-y. here that I ordered. And uh, so like I'm going to cook recipes from Anas's book, of course. But uh, I think I'm still going to have more. So excellent. So so you can start um, being that insufferable person who uses sumac instead of lemon. Okay, challenge accepted. Well, this was really interesting. I I had no idea of, of any of this. Yeah, no, we I was, I was uh, as usual nervous about this episode because uh, it's an ingredient that I knew very little about until now, and now I'm excited to cook with it more. Fantastic, Matthew. It seems like it's time for segments. I think it's time for segments. Let's start with spilled mail. This one comes to us from listener Amy, who says, My name is Amy, and I live in Chapel Hill, North Carolina with my family. I literally have no sense of smell. My question is, what kind of foods can I eat that have tremendous texture and make up for the lack of the sense of smell slash taste that I lack? So, Matthew, what what do you think of when you think of foods with tremendous texture? Okay, so a couple things came to mind, and one is... Dolsat bibimbap. So it's the uh, the Korean uh, uh, rice dish, mixed rice dish, where you have um, rice that's crisped up on like a uh, stone or cast iron surface. And like, uh, you know, it's typically made in a restaurant, like in a superheated stone bowl, but you can easily make it at home using a cast iron skillet. You get like a nice crispy layer on the rice. And then you're topping it with like a variety of vegetables, like, you know, bean sprouts and spinach and uh, maybe like some shiitake mushrooms. Uh, you know, meat can go on there, but it's going to have a variety of different textures, like, like you know, chewy textures and uh, like stringy in a good way textures. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and then, of course, as you as the rice crisps up and you toss it all together, you get you get also like, you know, hits of crispy rice in every bite also. Well, I had one idea, which is that um, one of my favorite food textures is the texture of bel puri, yeah. the Indian like sort of salady snack mix kind of thing. Um, I'm trying to think of, of so it's, you know, it's got puffed rice in it, yeah. vegetables, um, you know, uh, it, I mean, it like is primarily fried, fried about, dried noodles, I want to say. Is that something else? I don't know if else? it has that in okay. it. I think of primarily like puffed rice. All right. But I love the texture of it. Sometimes I think it all, I feel like I've also had nuts in it, which also gives texture. I feel like bel puri would be really satisfying yeah, absolutely. from a texture point of view. The other thing that came to mind for me, aside from like, you know, there, there are a variety of Chinese foods that are primarily eaten for texture, like uh, jellyfish and pig's ear that I think would be really good. Uh, mm-hmm to give a try, but also like 
American style rolled like maki sushi, rolled sushi. So yes. and I say American yes. style because like I'm thinking like not only will you get the textural contrast, but like if you've got like like a sushi roll with like uh, soft, you know, chewy rice, maybe a little crisp from the from the nori, and then like a freshly fried, you know, shrimp, uh, tempura shrimp down the middle. Like you don't, you not only get the contrast of textures, but also like of temperatures as well, which mm-hmm. I think could be really satisfying. You know what I just thought of too? So our recent guest, Hetty McKinnon, author of To Asia With Love, yeah. we did a whole episode with her on kanji or, or juk. Yeah. And she talked a lot about kind of the unconventional yes. toppings that she likes to put on hers, like kale chips. And I feel like she had some like mushrooms, which would have a wonderful chewy texture, maybe even some sort of a nut situation yeah, definitely. on that like, peanut, like roasted peanuts, absolutely. porridge. I love the idea of that. All right. Well, I hope that helps, listener Amy. Please let us know. Good luck, listener Amy. I hope we have, we have offered some satisfying ideas. Matthew, I am really excited to share with okay. you today's cute animal. So, you know, listeners, if you were at our live show, you will have heard this conversation in which Matthew confessed to being a little bit burnt out on searching for cute animals. I don't know how anybody gets burnt out on searching for cute animals. I think this is like a a defect of yours. Oh, yeah, for sure. But um, our listeners have asked that cute animals you need to know continue. And therefore, I am going to be (gasps) finding cute animals for a while. Today's cute animal (gasps) is Chuck I know, get ready. Chuck the Prairie Dog, who is an Instagram star. He does all kinds of prairie dog things, like standing on his back legs in a field and looking around. But the video that I wanted to share today, uh, you know, it's not long, but he does this incredible stretch. He's lying on the grass. He stretches out his arms and legs. There's a dog right there who sniffs his butt. Yeah. That- but, oh, my God. The stretch he does, it's so satisfying. He like he looks like he's doing like a Superman exactly. That's flying what I say, posture. Like, I'm flying! <laughs> I love that. That's what anyway, that's what Chuck is saying. Is, wait, is Chuck Chuck's the prairie dog. Chuck's yeah, the prairie, prairie Chuck. Dog. Yeah, yeah, this is great. Okay, so, Inst- followed. Yes, so yeah, follow at Prairie Chuck on Instagram. Oh, this is delightful. Yeah, there's also one uh, Matthew. I don't know if you can see this. It's the second one that's currently posted yeah. where he's sitting on a dashboard and he he ducks when the windshield wipers come on. Okay, I'm watching that's it now. <gasps> <enjoyable. gasps> Isn't it so cute? I love him. <laughs> Oh wow! Oh, okay, I love him. Oh god, I'm I, this so is happy. this has really reinvigorated my love of of cute animals, which I which I stopped loving. <laughs> okay, two weeks ago. You know, also I found it strangely satisfying just to watch Chuck be a prairie dog, like looking around yeah. in a field, like strangely satisfying. I so, think I I think I kind of forgot that prairie dogs existed. Like, cause like guinea pigs and prairie dogs, like, I don't know, I don't know if there's room in my brain for both of those things. They're different. I know. They're different. And squirrels. Did you know squirrels are different from prairie dogs and guinea pigs? I did. I have, I have heard about squirrels. Okay. Okay. Uh, Matthew, this week you've got a now but wow. Yes, I do. And my now but wow is cartoonist Christine Mari, who is on Patreon. And uh, Christine is one of my favorite cartoonists. And a couple years ago, she wrote a great book called Diary of a Tokyo Teen. Uh, but for the last couple of years, she has been mostly uh, doing comics on Instagram. And uh, she does stuff about identity and mental health and lots and lots of other stuff that's always like – 
you know, it's it's my it's the thing I always keep coming back to is like the intersection of like very real but also very funny, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, like I I have like the greatest respect for people who can approach like really difficult topics without like losing the 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 humor. Um, you know, some, someone like a Molly Weisenberg, for example. Um, and uh, uh, we will link to uh, Christine's Instagram, which is great. But if uh, if you support her on Patreon, which we'll also link to, I started doing it. You'll also get special comics and live streams and more. So Christine Molly. Awesome. Great. Well, this has been another um, information packed spilled milk. Information, oh, yeah. prairie dog and, and plant filled spilled milk. Just like we like them. Yeah. And uh, our producer is Abby Circatella. We've really made her work hard in this episode. <laughs> yep. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcast, wherever you get your, your podcast, wherever you get this one podcast. <laughs> um, all uh, the other can... podcasts are sold out. There's a supply chain issue. Yeah. Uh, thanks again yeah. to Anas Atasi for being our guest this week. Uh, his book, Sumac, is available wherever books are sold. And you can uh, you can chat with other Spilled Milk listeners on Reddit at reddit.com slash r slash everything spilled milk. And until next time, thank you for listening to Spilled Milk, the show that droops. <laughs> the, <laughs> yes. the, the show that droops well before the end of the episode. <laughs> Molly Weisenberg. <laughs> and I'm Matthew Amster Burton. Um, and oh my God, are you hearing this? No. Okay, good. This episode is brought to you by Town Place Suites by Marriott. Whether you're traveling for work or just enjoying a relaxing week away, Town Place Suites by Marriott has all the comforts of home. Yeah, and if you're a spilled milk listener, we bet that sometimes you want to cook when you travel. And Town Place Suites by Marriott has a Weber grill on the patio. They've got a microwave, dishwasher, stovetop, full-size refrigerator. You are good to go. In other words, Town Place Suites by Marriott has all the amenities you need to feel at home during your stay. Find the comforts of home at Town Place Suites. Go there with Marriott Bonvoy.